Israel really is going far beyond its borders and curing the sick, feeding the hungry, helping the needy, solving problems when it comes to AI, water security, food security, technology. In all these realms, Israel is making a difference. My guest today is Avi Yorish. Avi is a former official in the U.S. Departments of Treasury and Defense and founder of IMS, a merchant processing company. He's the author of five books, and his latest book, Thou Shalt Innovate, How Israeli Ingenuity Repairs the World, has been translated into more than 40 languages. In this book, Avi profiles wondrous Israeli innovations that are collectively changing the lives of billions of people around the world. I recently sat down with Avi and talked about why Israeli innovators of all faiths feel compelled to make the world a better place. Avi, thanks so much for being on the show. I greatly appreciate it. Charles, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me on. Okay, folks, the name of the book is Thou Shalt Innovate, How Israeli Ingenuity Repairs the World. So this book, from what, I'm, what I've read about it, um, uh, Avi, is, has been translated to more than 40 languages? It's done quite well. It's now actually in uh, nearly, I think it's in 35 languages. It just came out last week in German. It's, uh, the book has been received quite well internationally. People around the world are reading a positive story, a series of stories as it relates to Israel. And frankly, Israeli innovations that are curing the sick, feeding the hungry, helping the needy, and solving these grand global challenges that we face on the planet Earth, water security, food security, space, artificial intelligence, how a country the size of New Jersey is helping solve some of the world's greatest challenges. Okay, so here's my question for you. You wrote this book, and I read it, really great read. Uh, it talks, you talk a whole bunch, you talk about, you t I think you take about 15 different innovations that came out of Israel. Uh, you share it, and in the back of the book, you have uh, Israel's you know, milestones of great innovation from, I think, starting from when the state was, uh, was founded in 48. And um, you also talk about why Israel is such an innovative country. But before we get into that, here's my question to you. Why are 35 plus languages, that means maybe 40 to 50 different countries, why has this book been so popular in outside of Israel and popular in the rest of the world? All I can say is that human beings love great stories, one. And two, as we face an inflection point on the planet Earth, where for the first time in history, we really do have control over our destiny, people all over the world are trying to figure out how do we shape the future? How do we make this a more positive place? And they're looking to countries that are helping solve these challenges. And Israel, is one of the places on the planet Earth that is batting far above its weight and making an impact around the world. And that is a story that people want to read and are curious about. Right. You wrote this book in what, 2018, I think it was, right? That's right. It came out in March of 2018. Okay. So a lot has happened in the past two years. But what I find so amazing, and you put this in the back of the book, Israel has over 300 research and development centers owned by multinational companies in various fields including Apple, Amazon, Facebook, Google, Intel, and Microsoft. China, India, the United States now look to the Jewish state to help solve the emerging water needs. Universities around the globe are forging strong partnerships. How is there any other country that you know of that has so much uh, in terms of resource by multinationals in, 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 uh, 
in one country? Look, I will say this. I'm a, obviously a, a huge fan of what comes out of Israel and find that the stories that I've written about to be extraordinarily exciting and inspiring. Israel really does bring together a whole host of countries and showing it a pathway forward. It's not the only country in the world that's doing that. Actually, uh, the Bloomberg Index ranks, I think, Israel five when it comes to the most innovative country in the world. So it's not the most innovative. I think where Israel really does shine is in the innovations that are making the world a better place. And for all of your listeners today, I always say Israel is not a, is not a paradise. It has problems just like every other country does around the rest of the world. It has problems between the very rich and the very poor, problems with its Arab neighbors, problems with resource scarcity. I think what differentiates Israel is this idea that as we look to the future, it feels that it is taking ownership over the future course of human events. And it is playing a meaningful role in solving these grand global challenges. And it is a message that resonates around the world. So why is it that this state, which is the size of New Jersey, has eight or nine million people or so, which I think there are more people in New York subway systems in two days than there is in the whole of Israel. And this country, I think, is the number one in terms of um, uh, foreign countries that are on NASDAQ. I think you mentioned that somewhere, right? Okay. Outside the United States and China, Israel has more companies listed on the NASDAQ than any other country in the world. So you're asking... You're asking, Charles, what's the secret of Israel's success? What's in the water or the what's DNA it? that makes this so? So I'd say it rests on four principles. The first is that, the first is diversity. Israel is one of the most diverse places on the planet. It has Christians of every stripe and every variety, Muslims of every stripe and every variety, and Jews from all over the world. That's one. Two, this idea of failure. In most of the world, failure is really looked down upon. In Israel, failure is part of the process. And as every business owner and every innovator will tell you, in order to succeed, you've got to fail and you've got to fail multiple times. Just think of the light bulb. It took a thousand filaments before the light bulb was created and only on a thousand and one were we able to create the light bulb. So this idea that if you haven't failed in one, of your, one or more of your companies, people look at you like you've actually done something not correct. The third is the, uh, are the secular institutions that Israel has. Israel has two big primary institutions that are secular, and that are all but one of its universities and the military. And we can talk about the role of the military since I think that plays a really special role too. We can circle back to that if you want, if your listeners are interested. And the last is the idea of the prophetic tradition. For the last 3,900 years, uh, the prophets of the children of Israel have been, curing, have been calling on us to cure the sick, feed the hungry, help the needy. No less than three times a day, there's a very special Jewish prayer that is uttered. And I say this again in a, in a cultural sense, not necessarily in a religious sense, but in a cultural sense. Uh, we are instructed to repair the world in the image of God. No less than 10 times in the book of the Mishnah, in the, in the cornerstone book called the Mishnah, which is the underlying uh, book for all of Jewish law, it instructs, it instructs us to engage in something called tikkun olam, the idea of repairing the world. And you can't, you can't three times a day utter the words of curing the sick, feeding the hungry, helping the needy, repair the world, bring more light to the world, and for that not to have a deep impact on the cultural DNA of your people. And ultimately, those four things combined deeply impacted the founders of the state of Israel. David Ben-Gurion was the first prime minister of the, of the Jewish state. And uh, in 1948, May of 48, he stood at a lectern and he said two extraordinary things. 
First, he said, after 2,000 years of wandering, the gates of the state of Israel are officially open again, and our moment has arrived, and that the Jewish people are welcome to come home and play a meaningful role in making the world a better place. And secondly, he said, I quote, Israel has been granted the great privilege and the obligation to tackle some of the greatest challenges of the 20th century. He seemed to be saying that at the very heart and soul, one of the raison d'etre of the, of, the, of the state of Israel was to not only protect and enrich the lives of its citizens, but to go also beyond the borders of the state of Israel. And the, and the hope, our most sublime hope is to make the world a better place. And you're seeing that today in technology. Israel really is going far beyond its borders and curing the sick, feeding the hungry, helping the needy, solving problems when it comes to AI, water security, food security, technology. In all these realms, Israel is making a difference. Now, Charles, if you look 10 years into the future, I want you to pretend that it's 2030, okay? By 2030, some extraordinary things are going to happen on the planet. We're going to have humans on the moon, and we're going to be on our way to Mars. Scientists are predicting by 2030, Parkinson's, essential tremor, Tourette's, cancer, big diseases are going to be a thing of the past, that we're essentially going to be running on green energy by 2030, and that computers, Charles, I'm glad you're sitting, are going to process faster than the human brain. For the first time in human history, we're going to have something that processes faster than our brain, which means that we're going to have thoughts that we never had before. The world is going to fundamentally look different in the next decade or two. And I challenge you to look at these grand global challenges. I challenge you to look at every one of them, and you will find an Israeli who's looking to solve those grand global challenges. And for countries around the world that are looking to solve these problems and make a meaningful difference in shaping the destiny of the future of the world, the future is bright, Charles. And that's why I'm so excited about the future of the state of Israel. I'm excited about where humanity is headed over the course of the next decade or two. So this is basically what you're saying is it's something that's tied into the DNA of Judaism of repairing the world and not sitting back and letting someone else take care of it. But it's your obligation to make the world a better place and innovate and constantly uh, solve problems, cure diseases, make deserts bloom, and so on. Is that right? It is certainly part, every country and every people has a unique aspect to their DNA. And this one is embedded in, in the Jewish people's DNA. It's why I named the book Thou Shalt Not. The idea that it really represents, in my mind, the, the unwritten commandments that we are here to prepare the world. Our most sublime hope has been to do that. And as we have wandered the planet over the course of the last 2,000 years, we have finally come home. And uh, the moment of the Jewish people in the state of Israel is, has arrived. And it is a moment that I think we have been waiting for for a very, very long time. And that is enshrined in the national anthem of the state of Israel, Hatikva, which, is, which means the hope. That hope has been around for 2,000 years, and we are finally here to exercise or strive for our most sublime hope. Right. You know, this is a post-book uh, you published in 2018, but you mentioned about failure. I remember in 2019 when um, Israel sent a spacecraft to land on the moon, and the descent, it crashes. And President Reuven Rivlin says, tomorrow we start number two, Bereshit number two, which was the project. So I interviewed the, uh, the founder, the two founders of Space.io. And I think uh, your listeners will be excited to learn that Bereshit 2 is, is, is in the planning stages. And the idea is that they've talked about a whole host of scientific experiments. And the next challenge that they're going to look to solve is, 
how are we going to grow food on the moon? And the next experiment is to get a satellite craft to land on the moon and try and actually plant food to grow so that humans can eat it while, while we're there. I mean, that really is like a mind-bending experiment. To think that in 10 years we're going to have humans there, we're going to be planting food on the moon and drinking water that's on the moon already? This is the beginning of us stepping outside of, of planet Earth, this cradle of civilization, and moving beyond the cradle of civilization. So we are at an exciting point of human history. So we have a country that's in a very bad neighborhood, has uh, been under attack and in a state of war with its neighbors for the past, since its founding, uh, for the past 73 or so years, yet with very little natural resources, has been able to innovate and continues to innovate and be a world leader in innovation. And you're basically saying that it's not only baked into the DNA of the Jewish state, but it's also, in a sense, the culture of uh, trying, innovating, and not being concerned. Failure is just another opportunity to see what didn't work and to find a way it did work. You capture that, you capture that beautifully. The fact that Israel has been at war for the last never said, let's just say for the last hundred years or so. I mean, the country's been around since 1948, so it's technically 73 years, but certainly the predated the state of Israel. While painful and, uh, and sad, uh, has certainly propelled the inhabitants to be a much more resilient society and look far beyond the borders. And uh, I believe in the next decade or two, uh, Israel and its neighbors will be among the most peaceful, verdant places on the planet Earth. Just look at the last year or two. Right. Israel has, uh, has crafted agreements with four of its Arab neighbors, with uh, UAE, Sudan, Bahrain, and Morocco. That really is an extraordinary moment, Charles. And we're on our way, I hope, for more peace agreements and a place that, uh, a region of the world that becomes the startup region. Yeah, I, I think what people don't realize is that the country is only has 9 million people. And out of those 9 million people, uh, it's not only Jews who live in, in, in Israel. It is uh, Israeli Arabs, which make up, I think, 1.5 million people or so. I don't know what percentage of population 20, that is. 20%. 20%. 20%. Right, 20% of the population are Israeli uh, Arabs, which have full rights as every Arab, as every Israeli citizen has. Uh, you have Christians, you have Muslims, and also you have Palestinians who are living in the territories who are also the beneficiaries of this amazing innovation. Is that more or less right? That is right. And I think if you look at the stories I feature in the book, almost every single story featured in the book has Arabs and Jews working together. Not every story, but certainly a lot of stories. And they, uh, the Israeli Arab population plays a meaningful role. I'll tell you an interesting story from the book, uh, The GPS for the Brain. For those of your listeners that have Parkinson's, uh, they, will, they will be aware of the fact that something called deep brain stimulation is how you uh, primarily make an impact for those afflicted with Parkinson's. Uh, what most listeners will not be aware of the fact is DBS, deep brain stimulation, was developed in France, but it took an Israeli scientist at the Hebrew University to discover that if you pulse the basal ganglia of the brain right here at the, the base of the cranium, if you pulse that exact spot, you can reduce the symptoms of Parkinson's. The problem is if you don't get to the exact spot, you either turn someone to a vegetable or you kill them. Here it comes in an amazing Israeli-Arab uh, couple from Nazareth, uh, Imad and Reem Yunus, and they developed something called the GPS for the brain. Uh, 
And that GPS today allows brain surgeons all over the world to get to that exact spot on the brain using sound and pulse the brain. And if you look at many of the stories features in the book, you have this amazing diversity that takes place. I'll share with you another interesting story. Wait, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on a second. I want to pick some of the stories here because I, when I read them, I knew of many of them. But the way you tell them, first of all, folks, the book is really well worth getting because it's a quick read. It's 15 chapters just on new innovations segmented by um, uh, global market solutions, technology, a small nation, big vision, and a couple of chapters that that um, that basically set the stage in terms of Israel's DNA. But what you do is I think you start almost every chapter with a biblical quote or some type of quote attached to that chapter where you see what motivated, well, you're trying to, you know, trying to see what motivated, not really 100% sure, but you could see where this is a scriptural uh, uh, imperative for people to innovate. Here's what I will tell you. Um, I interviewed nearly 150 people for the book. It was one of the most inspiring projects I've ever undertaken. And I felt like my, my, my DNA changed as I, as I interviewed people for the book. And um, I constantly checked myself and, and asked the innovators themselves, what motivated you? Why did you do this? Why did you start this company? Why did you start this venture? And in almost all of the cases, they started with the imperative of, I am here to make the world a better place. I need, I must solve a big problem. And for those that didn't start with that basic premise, although the vast majority did, they eventually came to that conclusion on their own. And it became their, it became their life force. It became the reason why they got up in the morning. And I, when you talk to these innovators, they're living on a plane not like the one me and you live on, Charles. There's a vision that they wake up every morning with that they are playing a fundamental role in making the world a better place, inspires me, and I feel like is already playing an important role in inspiring my children. Before they go to bed at night, I put my kids down. I have small children, 10, 8, and 6, and I consistently tell them about the challenges that we face on the planet Earth and about those innovators that are striving to make the world a better place. And so one of the stories I'll share with you just before the pandemic, I was with my kids at a, um, at a tech conference. And uh, one of the innovations that was featured was the first chapter of the book. It was the, uh, it's an organization called uh, United Hatsala, United Rescue. And these are the guys that have revolutionized emergency medicine. So Charles, if you were to have a heart attack right now in the studio, heaven forbid, how long do you think it would take you before an ambulance would come to your studio in Brooklyn? Well, if I call Hatsala, probably quick. If I call 911, I would think 15 or so minutes. So on average, anywhere in the United States, it's 21 minutes. And in a country like Israel that's experienced war and terrorism over the course of the last 73 years, 21 minutes, way too long. And so this amazing Israeli organization called United Rescue did three extraordinary things. First, the founder at Eli Beer, uh, he brought together 6,000 today. 6,000 emergency responders, Muslims, Christians, and Jews. That, that amazing diversity aspect. I would say diversity powers the Israeli startup ecosystem. Secondly, each and every one of us has a smartphone. And generally, when we want to call a cab, what do we do? We don't call a cab anymore. That's still 1985. Mm -hmm. What we do is we press a little button on our smartphone, Uber, Get, Via, Lyft, and it geospatially locates the three nearest cabs, and then the one that's closest comes to you. 
Instead, LEB are geospatially located the five nearest emergency responders, volunteers that are not paid. And in order to get to the scene of a medical emergency, I'm sure you've ordered pizza from Pizza Hut. He gives many of these, many of his volunteers, he gives them this Pizza Hut looking moped with a box in the back that instead of carrying pizza, carries medical supplies. Charles, do you know what the national average is anywhere in Israel to get an emergency responder to the scene of a medical emergency? I do, but you say it. It's three minutes yeah. anywhere in Israel. And in every major city, it's 90 seconds. Right. Now, it would be enough if that was, if Eli Beer just said, I'm just going to do it in Israel. I don't need to go anywhere else. Today, that innovation is in nine countries around the world, including in Jersey City. Now, bringing it back to my kids. Yeah, I want to tell you something before you tell your kids. We, he came, I remember seeing him in uh, Brooklyn. He came to Brooklyn, New York, to one of our synagogues. And he had one of those mopeds outside. And we all thought it was a great idea because we have a, um, uh, a network, a volunteer network that, that, that's, um, that's an ambulance service that gets there within minutes. Same thing, but they don't have a, they basically send out the alert and anyone who's in the area runs over. But he really perfected how it's done. I think we had a problem in New York with regulations of allowing mopeds to do it, which is such a shame Especially with all the traffic. It was, it was actually even more fun, more sad than that, Charles. Is the idea that we couldn't get the law right for the good scenarios, where there was there was insurance liability. Yeah, some to someone that come and save your life. It's really one of these things where we have to fix the law in that regard. Yeah, it was just, it was it was sad because you because of the density in Brooklyn, and I think there's four million people. Is that I don't think there's anyone within that could get, they could get within 60 seconds of anyone, you know, if, if that, that's how dense the area is and how many volunteers they're on, where they're located. And his idea of getting through traffic with the MOPA we thought was amazing. He was trying to raise money here, wasn't an issue. Then we ran into, um, into uh, City Hall, which is really, a, really a crime. And how many people, you know, just we had on my block a few years ago, maybe a little more than a few years ago, a child choking. And... Uh, um, within, uh, you know, they put that call out. I think with, I saw people in my neighborhood running, I think it was maybe two or three in the afternoon, just running to this house a few doors away from me. And within maybe, I would, I would say maybe 60 seconds of that phone call, they maybe had six or seven and then they brought uh, six or seven volunteers and then they had the ambulance down the block, then the police car. If you would have waited for 911 or something, that kid would have been dead. And it was, and I mean, it was probably the responders that we have around the country. I mean, we've got, Certainly, got millions of emergency responders. Every one of them has a smartphone. We've got X number of mopeds that we could we could leverage for this use. I mean, yeah. Think of the number of lives that we could save in this country, or even in major cities: New York, San Francisco, LA, Chicago, Washington D.C. It really makes me sad. Yeah, but you know that that, that goes to the Israeli innovation, which is basically here's the problem. We're going to find the solution. It's that cockiness. It's that it's that I got this. And all right, we'll find it. It's not a big deal. We'll, we'll figure this out. And for him to, when you read some of the innovations in your book that you showcased, and there were so many more that came out in the past two years, you look at them, you say, common sense. Why didn't anyone else drip irrigation? Talk before you tell you about your kids, because I do want to hear that. Talk about drip irrigation, which is virtually everywhere in the world today, and is really making places with, I think, just a few inches of rain a year uh, green. I mean, look, I'll even zoom out for a minute. For a minute. Israel, 60% of the country is desert. It's the world's one and only water superpower. I mean, it has more water than it knows what to do with, and it's leveraged five innovations to make the world a much more green, verdant place using water. The first is drip irrigation. 
Drip irrigation are these little plastic tubes that emit a micro amount of water. It's used by over a billion farmers around the world today. It was developed on the edge of the desert in the mid-1960s. So about desalination. Wait, wait, hang on. Before you do that, let me just put some color for those who are not that familiar with drip irrigation. What you have is a whole bunch of crops, and you have this thin tube going near the crops that has water in it. And now near each root system above ground, you have a tiny hole on this tube. And it lets out by computer. It's programmed to let out only a certain amount of uh, um, water with nutrients into that area. So there's no waste. It's not like a water sprinkler system, which is wasting all water. So the, the root system gets the water and, um, and, and nutrients that it needs with very little waste, and therefore you can do it with extremely small amounts of water. So that was what, in 1950s, you said? 1965. 1965, and Israel exported that to, I believe it was Africa, parts of Africa, immediately right Africa, after? Asia, Latin yeah. America. I mean, it really is yeah. now a worldwide phenomenon. Yeah, but what I'm saying is, Ari, about that is that what's so amazing is you look at drip irrigation, and maybe I'll put a link down in, um, in the, um, in the, in the um, description of the podcast. I want you to just go on, online and look at that. When you look at drip irrigation, it's not rocket science. It, it's, you look at it and you say, my gosh, it is so common sense. Why didn't anyone ever think about that problem before? Couldn't agree more. I mean, that is really, if you look at the book, 15 innovations, it's mostly just the Yiddish Kup, as they say, it's the Jewish mind. It's it's just very practical. Very, very practical. So I cut you off before, get right back to your kids. You were telling them about innovation. I was just saying in terms of the kids, you know, when we took them to this tech conference, my son, he says to me, daddy, I don't, I don't want to drive a car. This is now, at the time he was nine years old, eight years old. Daddy, I don't want to drive a car. I said, really? Why don't you want to drive a car? He said, I want to ride an ambicycle and I want to save lives. And so for your listeners, I hope they'll read the book and I hope they'll find inspiration in the book and tell those stories to their children because we're really passing on the baton to the next generation. I would encourage your listeners, if they've not already done so, come to Israel. And you will see an extraordinarily complicated place. Uh, and the innovators that they'll meet are bound together, not by necessary religion, money, or stature. The innovators that they meet will really they'll find that these are people that want to make the world a better place. Yeah, yeah. For, those, for those of your listeners who come, go to the Kotel, go to Tel Aviv, and go to the beaches, all beautiful. But also go to places like the Weizmann Institute, which is one of the preeminent places, medical, medical science institutions of the world that are cranking out innovations that are solving grand. Does the, White, does the Weizmann Institute give tours? Or to pe- could people go? Uh, you just, Absolutely. Really? Absolutely. Look, we just talked about United Rescue. Their headquarters is, in, is right on the entrance to Jerusalem. The founder himself would be glad to give tours. It really is an extraordinary place to see with your own eyes, Muslims, Christians, and Jews working together to save lives. That Charles is priceless. Yeah. And it's, uh, it's an experience that I hope that your listeners will take upon themselves to go see with their own eyes. And separate and apart, when they read the book, these are stories that I hope that they will tell their children and to their friends, because it's a much more hopeful view of the earth than than most people have to. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I, I want you to tell the story of the lame shall walk because the, the story is just absolutely amazing. But the irony of the inventor of this and his own invention is really, it just, it just knocks your socks off. It's so, it's so staggering. Go ahead. You, you, 
this, this, pro, this you know what, in fact, um, we, I, I definitely going to put down in the description, I want some people to see this, because if you just click on it and watch what this thing does, it's absolutely amazing. I mean, every time I watch the video of a person who is either a quadriplegic or a paraplegic standing up and seeing their loved ones at eye level and hugging them is an extraordinarily powerful experience. Right, right. I jumped yeah. in, you jumped up to the middle. Start from the beginning of what this is and why it's such an amazing I'm innovation. There, uh, very bright man, PhD engineer, experienced a horrible ATV accident, say 20, 25 years ago. And he became extraordinarily depressed. He realized he would never walk again. And so he does what any normal person would do these days is he goes out to Google and he starts to think to himself, you know, my spine is a skeleton and it's broken and it's never, it can't be fixed. I wonder, are there creatures on the planet that have not an internal skeleton, but an external skeleton? Well, let me interrupt you a second. Was he, what was his, what was his uh, technical background? He was an engineer. He would, he was not in the, uh, he was a graduate of the Technion, uh, which is the MIT of Israel. But he was not, this was definitely not, he was like a computer science guy. It was not a, he was not a practical application engineer. Right. This was, he was more on the theoretical side. Right. And he, um, he wondered, are there, are there animals and creatures that have an exoskeleton? And he discovered very quickly there are armadillos, crabs, scorpions. And uh, he created this device. And I hope your listeners will they'll do a quick Google search and they'll find these videos. It's this battery pack that goes on the back of your legs and hugs on the back of your back and then hugs your legs and allows you to literally stand up and see your loved ones. Now, if that wasn't enough, seven years ago, the world's first paraplegic not only stood up and, and kissed their loved one and saw them at eye level, ran the London Marathon for the first time ran a marathon for the first time in human history. It's not enough that, the, that a, an individual who's a, a paraplegic stood up and walked, but now you're having paraplegics that are running London marathons. And then Amit Gopher himself, five years ago, said, I can't benefit from my own device. And that really was heartbreaking for him because he was a quadriplegic. In other words, he didn't have use of his arms and of his legs. Now, Charles, I don't know if you've been on a um, those... Um, those uh, it's like an up and right type of device. Um, this thing's called not a moped, uh, not a scooter. These upright scooters that you see kind of everywhere in New York City. Yeah, I don't think we have them anymore. I think they're outlawed. You know, those we outlawed everything. Uh, those. And what are those? Created one of these up and rides for himself that allows a quadriplegic to stand up and zip around at eye, at, at eye level, and that really is a full circle where you come from an individual who can't walk to an individual who can not only walk but can run, it's a, it's a wonderful and heartwarming uh, Yeah, it's no, it, it's absolutely amazing. And and for, for those who- Segway, they're called segways. Segway, thank you. That was it, right, segways. I never liked them. But uh, I don't know, I felt, I don't, you, you see them all over and people give tours with them and you drive around, I'd rather walk. But um, what, what I find, um, uh, what's really amazing is that people should never know from it, but if you know anyone who's in a wheelchair, what you're mentioning to stand up and the world looks totally different to someone who's sitting in a wheelchair. You know, everyone is, you're, you're looking at everyone's waist level high. You're not looking at people in the eye. It's a real big deal. It's a real big deal. So to be able to stand up and uh, is just an amazing thing. But to be mobile, that's something they don't have in an upright position. 
which is yeah. absolutely amazing. This has changed lives. A simple invention that you would think, all right, you know, it's, it's, if the, you know, th that's what I find so amazing. When you look at some of these inventions, really it's innovations, there is nothing here that you'd say, well, maybe a couple of things, but very few things that I would say is, why not think of that? They're, they're very, you know, like, for example, Iron Dome, uh, the story of Iron Wood. It, it, that's something, okay, if we can get missiles, knock them out of the air, intercept them before they land, we'll be able to protect. That was Ronald Reagan's thing of Star Wars that he talked about that was really just fiction. And Israel took that and created the Iron Dome. Yeah. And I think you, uh, you, yeah. you, you start the book off with uh, hearing the rocket attacks from Hamas uh, into Israel being intercepted by the Zion Dome and, and just you're absolutely floored by that. Not only was I floored by it, I remember I, I took my then two-year-old down four flights of stairs and he was terrified as any child. My next door neighbors, we went into the bomb shelter, we huddled in the dark, terrified. And 10 minutes later, the building, Charles, violently shook. I mean, violently shook. We heard these two massive booms. And we, we understood it was safe for us to go back to our apartments. And at that moment in time, I realized Star Wars doesn't happen in the movies. Star Wars is a real thing. And Israel has accomplished the impossible, where they've turned this, they've turned this weapon into a defensive weapon that allows its inhabitants to live life pretty normally as missiles are raining down in the country. It was, a, it, was, it was the turning point of my professional life, Charles. I will tell you, it was that summer that I realized that these innovate, this was an Israel that I was not aware of. I was not a techie. I was not part of Silicon Valley. Um, I was, I'm a historian by, by training. I realized, wait a second. I talked to my gardener about drip irrigation, how it was used by over a billion people. My, my CFO hmm. had DPS. I was talking about how deep, deep brain stimulation, it had these things, like the GPS for the brain. I'm like, wait a second, what? This was like a whole new part of Israel that forced me to explore the country in a completely different way. Wherever I went, I saw these ambicycles saving people's lives. And that was really the beginning of me diving into the story and mm. of interviewing as many people as possible. What, what has caused this country to produce more startups combined than Canada, India, Japan, yeah. Korea, mm. and the United Kingdom combined? How did this happen? Mm. So for me, that, that summer, and the, and the Iron Dome innovation in particular, forced me to really reconcile with this brand new reality that the planet is dealing with. And then I was just reading this weekend, or maybe it was last weekend, that... Uh, uh, the United States is talking about putting the Iron Dome in Guam. If China ever attacks Taiwan, the first place they're going to do is try to knock out aircraft and ships that are stationed in Guam. So if those missiles come over, what's it? You can't defend Taiwan if you have no ships or if there are ships and, and, and planes are knocked out. So they're talking about deploying the Iron Dome as defensive weapon if China should send missiles into Guam to knock out the uh, fleet and American aircraft. So you see something that was developed, I think it was what, at 14 or 12? I'm not sure. Was it, I think it was 08? When was the Iron Dome? Um, it, it was really perfected. The first time it was perfected was 2012. It was 12. the first time it was a successful launch. I mean, obviously it took many, it's the, the, the beginning of Iron Dome started in 2006, 2007, but it took five years to- Right, with the Patriot missiles and the, with the United States help, right? And then then uh, they took over. Their Danny Gold, I think, was a champion of that and- about to, they were about to toss it so many times, saying it's not going to work. It's not going. He found a way. Because for the, for those who don't know, when Hamas sends missiles into Israel, their Gaza and Israel are just—it's a small border, it's a very short border. 
In fact, if you live in Be'er Sheva, the south part of Israel, a place called Sterot, you have 15 seconds, 15 seconds from the time that the missile is launched in Gaza till it hits instead of 15 seconds. So think about that. You're walking, you hear the alert, you have only 15 seconds to get to a shelter. Many people have not been able to do that, and, and young children and, and, and adults have died. And Israel created a Iron Dome which intercepts these missiles and blows them up overhead. And the ones we hear about are the ones that get through because it's 95% plus, but it's not 100%. You know, nothing's 100%. But just think, it's, it's a, a shudder to think how many, if just a handful got through and hit an apartment complex, you're talking about thousands of people. And that's what, uh, th- that's what Israel's living under. And so the Iron Dome is a defensive weapon uh, that uh, the United States uh, funds, gives money towards, and uh, was developed, I believe, in conjunction with the United States. Absolutely. And, uh, yeah, it, it was amazing. And Danny Gold on the Israel side championed this uh, against amazing odds and got it developed. And now you see the results of it. It's not only saved so many lives in Israel, but now it's going to be hopefully deployed in Guam to protect our aircraft and our troops. So it's a full circle kind of thing. Israel's the United States investments in these product, projects really come back and, and pay amazing dividends uh, to our troops here in the United States. Yeah, couldn't have put that better myself, Charles. So well it's done. not. All right, so we have we're just a, a little more time, but I just want to get into another one, uh, one of the innovations, because I, I, these, these just absolutely fascinate me. Uh, you have here about something which you would think is, you know, it makes so much sense, and I've thought about this even when I was a kid, Imagine when you have a stomach ache, you could actually see inside your body what's causing the stomach ache. Was it that watermelon rind that your mom said, don't eat because it'll give you stomach aches and their voices? And Israel creates a pill that you swallow that's a camera that goes through. Talk about that. So Gabi, Gabi Dunn, he was, uh, comes out of the military complex and he, he imagined a rocket going into space and he thought, what if you put a camera on the edge of that rocket? What happens if you swallow that rocket? Could it see the inside of your body? And uh, that today, for anyone that's had a colonoscopy, knows how uncomfortable colonoscopy is. You now have this extraordinary next-gen pill, size of a vitamin. You swallow, it takes thousands of pictures of your inside. For the first time in human history, we saw the small intestine on a live patient, as opposed to a, uh, a cadaver. And uh, that today is used all over the world. Right, that's an innovation that immediately took off. And that's another thing, the common sense, not the common sense, but the simplicity of a lot of these innovations continues to boggle my mind. You know, it's just, you know, going to Israel and you speak with the people, it it's always seems that no matter what the challenge is, the Hebrew word, the Hebrew words is, it's not bad. We're going to figure out something. It's, we'll get it. It's like, what? You have a big, and that's why uh, mobile eye, for example, uh, was which Intel bought uh, for for um, for um, um, what a billion dollars? For, yeah, it was eighteen or nineteen billion or something uh, for driving um, autonomous driving with cameras. Intel that was developed in Israel. That was like all right. Imagine if a car could see <laughs> things of these things. And that ways another Israeli innovation of finding directions uh, uh, using GPS and mapping streets, which was later bought by Google. So. It, I, I just don't get, and I want you to just tell it to me one more time, how a population 
uh, and it's really, it's 9 million, but it's not all 9 million people working on this innovation. How, how do they view problems differently than most to produce these kind of results? What have you seen in your, in your research? Ultimately, it's this idea of failure, that failure is important, one. And two, it's the, uh, I think what differentiates Israel, and we talked about it a little bit earlier in the show, uh, in the military, I, I don't know if you've had a chance to read Malcolm Gladwell's book, Outliers. Mm-hmm. Okay? And he talks about the amazing 10,000-hour rule that humans can accomplish anything they want as long as they're willing to put in 10,000 hours. And this idea of solving problems, I think, starts very young in Israel. First of all, because it's such a small country, they have the advantage of anyone coming into the military, they get the cream of the crop coming into these very advanced units. And this, the fact that everyone needs to serve, everyone gets to be put into these units, et cetera. Not everyone gets into the extraordinary units, but they have the cream of the crop going into the extraordinary units. And they get to play with their big boy toys for 10,000 hours. And they've gotten their 10,000 hours at such a young stage of the game that once they leave the military, they're ready to take on the world. Right. And it is the graduates of those institutions that go on to found these extraordinary companies like Checkpoint, like, uh, you know, Gavi Dodd from Pilcam was an extraordinary unit. Amit Gopher was an extraordinary unit. All these guys were in extraordinary units. And then, but they got their 10,000 hours in, in a very, very young age that allowed them to scale quickly. Right, on. right. I think it was something that like, is a, That is something special. Yeah, I think for the uh, unit 8100, I think you're referring to a lot of these guys who came out of... Uh, they they are just uh, any 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 VC money venture capital money finds them and their ideas they come out with I I don't know how many of these unicorns that's uh, these startups that became billion dollar companies were headed by founders of uh, founders were part of uh, Unit eighty one hundred which is Israel's um, cyber technology unit which is the cream of the cr- I think they find you in 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 in, uh, in junior high school and I think they. Aptitude test, it's like the best of the best of the best. I mean, we're talking about unicorns now. I don't know if you've been following the, the economy in Israel. The dollar yeah. is now three to a, three shekels to a dollar. This is the, so in other words, the, the dollar is getting weaker in comparison to the shekel. And this is just, just this week, it went down from, you know, over the last year or so, from let's just say three and a half to three. And I asked uh, last week, I interviewed uh, a fairly well-known economist. And I said, what gives? Okay, so you know, obviously the economy is strong, startup nation, great, but what is driving this? And he said to me, the number of exits Israel has had over the course of the last two years and the amount of US dollars that have come into the country over the course of the last few years has really strengthened the economy significantly. And this is a trend we're only going to continue seeing. Yeah, companies are being bought not for 10 million or 20 million, but near the billion mark and then some. Uh, Mobileye was what, 18 or 19 billion? And you hear startups all the time in Israel being bought for 500 million, for a billion, billion and a half. It's absolutely staggering. Absolutely staggering. The GDP is growing. Look, that's why the Abraham Accords is, is, is working. These Arab nations said it's enough being Israel's enemy. Israel has no designs on our land. They do not want to attack us. We can gain more by joining up with their economy and getting the fruits of their of their, uh, of their their um, innovation. But it's... But Charles, it's more than it's, you know, the, it, the billions are great and it's fabulous, but it really is, if you look at the heart and soul of the country, it's these innovations that are making the world better. Yeah. And we, we're going to see lots of exits in Silicon Valley and other places in the world, and I don't minimize the exit, 
Prime Minister of Israel last week at the uh, the Climate Change Conference, he said, it's time for us to, to change how we view apps and try to pivot apps that instead allow you to buy and sell things, rather now make an app that helps you attack the climate. Not attack climate, but attack climate change and, 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 and making the world better. And so that is where I think you will see where Israel is doing is interesting. It's that focus of giving back and scaling for the sake of making the world a better place. Yeah, you know, uh, what most people might not know is Israel's Prime Minister Bennett is a techie. He uh, he made his money through selling his uh, tech. I don't know what company. I forgot the name of the company. Um, but he's also his parents are from San Francisco. Yeah, yeah. They made. He was born in Israel. They made. Uh, they made Aliyah. They moved to Israel before he was born. Was he was born in the U.S.? I don't remember. I'm sorry. I don't remember if he was born in the U.S. or if his parents just made Aliyah. But it's an extraordinary success story. Yeah. It's the immigrant. Yeah, Naftali Bennett. He uh, he made his millions through technology. And uh, so he totally gets it, and that's where the comes. But look, you know, we have to realize is that Israel has to export. There's only nine million people in the country. You sell everyone the same widget twenty five times over. You're still not going to have a lot, a lot of money. There's a big world out there, and that's why China's, uh, um, I think, with drones is working with Israel. Uh, Israel has clients all over the world uh, that are buying this. And look, you know, I remember uh, about twenty years ago or a little less, um, Benjamin Netanyahu saying when he was prime minister, "Is our technology is going to be." peace to the Middle East. And we're People seeing, thought he was the same. Yeah. Yeah, look, they have the same problems of growing things and, and drinking and getting water. And this it's a, ter- it's a tough climate. And uh, just on those uh, technological advances, it's, it's working. And it's going to bring peace. And, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm very hopeful, not only innovations that are coming, but the Middle East will be a much safer place. As, as Arab nations realize, working with Israel is much better than working against it. Standard of living and, and everything. All right, folks, the name of the book is Thou Shalt Innovate, How Israeli Ingenuity Repairs the World. Uh, Avi, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. I really enjoyed our conversation. And uh, uh, the, folks, get this book. You really, you, it's, it's just an eye-opener as to what you can do when you think of solving huge problems. It's just, when you, there's no limitation. There really isn't. And many of the people in this book, uh, if, I'm, if I'm not mistaken here, there are, I'm not saying average Joes, but they are people like you and I. Some have above average intelligence. Others didn't have major technologic, technology background. But they all viewed a problem that was big, global, something that was not considered solvable and said, hey, I'm going to give it a shot. Is that more or less right? I would say that captures the heart and soul of the book. And as your listeners look to the person to their left and the person to their right, I want you to really look in the mirror and realize the only people that are going to move the dial on the issues that we care about collectively, Charles, are me and you and the listeners. And it's not that I, I, I have any delusion that me or you or any of the listeners are going to create the next Google or Waze. But each of us, once you start understanding that the world is separated between darkness and light, and that each of us has the ability to bring fundamentally more light to the world, and that could be in terms of visiting someone who's sick, helping someone cross the street, smiling at someone, opening the door for someone, that we as humans, once we see as our fundamental role to bring more light to the world, there's nothing that can stop us. Nothing is humanity. And as we look to the next 20 years, scientists are predicting that we're going to experience 50,000 years of human change over the course of the next, over, over this century. That's staggering. 
And if we can keep in mind that our role is to bring more light to the world, and that for those countries who innovate, the future is bright, nothing can stop us. Beautiful. Let's and end. that is the story that I hope that you will tell your children. It's what the story I tell my children. And it's the story that we should tell all of our children as we as we approach all these challenges that we will continue to face in the years ahead. Beautiful. Let's leave it right there because I couldn't top that. Uh, Avi Yurish, name of the book is Thou Shall Innovate. Thanks so much for being on the show. I greatly, greatly enjoyed it and appreciate it. Looking forward to seeing you again, Charles. Thanks again. Thank Bye-bye. You. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Charles Mizrahi Show. If you're a new listener, welcome. If you've been listening for a while, we're glad to have you back. Either way, we'd love to know what you think of the show. Please leave a review if you listen on Apple Podcasts. Reviews make it easier for others to find the show. You can also see the video of the interview on the Charles Mizrahi Show channel on YouTube.